From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary stranger, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Dr. Michael Dixon, an advisor with the Canadian Space Agency, is standing by to discuss methods of growing food on Mars. Uh, will be with us just in mere moments. And if uh, man is going to colonize the red planet, we need to figure out how uh, to grow food, obviously, in order to sustain the uh, the colony. Uh, I seem to recall that Matt Damon's character in The Martian uh, was growing potatoes on Mars. Uh, but somehow, I don't think that's what Stomp and Tom Connors had in mind when he sang Bud the Spud from the Bright Red Mud. Not that red mud. Rolling down the highway smiling. Remember that? <laughs> Before that, let me introduce the boys in the band on the Gibson Flying V guitar, my technical producer and fine rockabilly friend, Ian Robertson. And on Rickenbacker bass guitar and occasionally the theremin, my story producer, Albert Vinzel. Say hello, Albert. On the Hammond B, my intern, Ryan White. Good to have you all aboard. Coming up in the uh, the next hour... Uh, the prolific and compelling storyteller Nick Redfern. His latest is 365 Days of UFOs, a year of alien encounters, and uh, we'll also conduct our weekly or semi-weekly remote viewing experiment. Again, that's the next hour. A little segment we like to call What's in the Box? And as always, if you want to play along at home and utilize your remote viewing skills, transcend time and space and identify the mystery object sitting on the desk here in uh, studio at uh, 70 Jefferson Avenue in Liberty Village, Toronto. Use the hashtag TCS Remote. TCS, that's The Conspiracy Show, abbreviated TCS Remote. Uh, actually, I don't actually have the uh, the famous uh, box for our What's in the Box segment. It's mysteriously gone missing. I think one of my boys is now using it to store his baseball cards, and it got shoved under a bed somewhere, but it'll turn up. Um, a programming note next week on the program, George Freund from Conspiracy Cafe will uh, discuss the United Nations, the CIA versus Trump, the end of the liberal world order, and more. Uh, plus, actress Marina Anderson um, Marina has appeared in a number of episodes of Bones. I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with that te- television program. Um, she was formerly married to the, uh, the actor, the late David Carradine. And uh, Marina has had um, a number of paranormal experiences that she'll be sharing with us. That's all next week on the program. Uh, please take a moment, as always, to get on up to the website strangeplanet.ca. Strangeplanet. And that is really a landing page for my various projects, radio, television, live events, the radio section, of course. That's where you'll find this program, The Conspiracy Show. Lots to check out there. There's an affiliates page if you want to find a radio station close to you that carries this this, uh, program. There's also a blue button on the left-hand side. Pay attention to that. That's where you can register and become a member. It's fast, easy, and free. And once you register as a member, you gain access to member only areas of the website. And also, please check out the uh, the new website, just recently rebuilt, relaunched for my television program, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. That's theconspiracyshow.com. 
Uh, there's an episode guide there for all four seasons and also an online store, which is brand new. You can browse and buy Conspiracy Show merchandise. There's mugs and sweatshirts and T-shirts and hoodies and phone cases, all with the Conspiracy Show logo. All right. To the main entree we go. I read this in the uh, the Daily Mail earlier this week. For any astronauts hoping to survive on the surface of Mars, growing crops in the arid soil of the Red Planet will be an essential will be an essential. Uh, now researchers have shown that it's not only possible to grow vegetables in soil similar to that found on Mars, but they're also safe to eat. Scientists at the uh, Wageningen, Wening, uh, I'm not going to pronounce that one, it's a university in the Netherlands anyway, they're able to achieve abundant harvests of 10 different crops, including radishes, peas, tomatoes, cress, rocket, and rye. Rocket. It's a type of lettuce, but how apropos. Uh, tests showed the plants contained no dangerous levels of heavy metals, and the researchers declared the results as promising. It suggests that it may indeed be possible for astronauts hoping to emulate Mark Watney, played by Matt Damon in The Martian, by growing their food on the alien world. Although the researchers did not use actual Martian soil, they used dirt from Earth, to create a mix that was as close to that found on the surface of Mars as possible. Closer to home, some pretty clever people are also trying to figure out how to grow crops on Mars. One such joins us for the next 40 minutes or so. Dr. Michael Dixon is the director of the Controlled Environment Systems Research Facility and Program and chair of the Environmental Biology Department at the University of Guelph. Off campus, he is the Technology Exchange Coordinator for the International Advanced Life Support Working Group, which is a strategic planning group offering information and personnel exchange between international space agencies, such as NASA, CSA, ESA, RSA, and JAXA. That's Japan. He's also chair of the Space Exploration Advisory Committee of the Canadian Space Agency and a member of the Life Science and Technical Committee within the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. As project leader for the Canadian research team investigating the contributions of plants to life support in space, Dr. Dixon formed the Space and Advanced Life Support Agriculture Program at the University of Guelph. This program currently represents Canada's prime contribution to the International Space Program Objectives in Life Support. Dr. Dixon, welcome aboard. Thanks for hanging out with us this evening. Well, good evening, Richard. Nice to talk to you. Likewise. So, this is uh, this is news to me. I mean, most of us in southern Ontario are very well familiar with the work of the University of Guelph in agriculture. It's a world leader. Uh, but now you've managed to marry space uh, uh, space and, and agriculture under one roof. So tell me a little bit more about uh, the uh, the program at the University of Guelph. When did it get started and and uh, and uh, who funds it and um, and the like okay well it's uh, it started back in the mid 90s and um, we started you know rather small obviously but in the course of uh, the last 20 years or so um, Canada has made some very significant investments um, the federal government the provincial government um, and industry partners uh, have helped us build up essentially the the most unique and probably the the uh, largest single recent investment in uh, in the kinds of 
tools that you need to figure out these issues of going to space and growing plants for food for life support. Now, um, many of us saw Matt Damon uh, growing um, potatoes on the Martian, and he had these nice little this nice little cultivated area underneath this, you know, inside this structure, nice little furrowed rows and so forth. Mm. But how accurate a depiction is that? Is that how you imagine you would be growing food? You would actually be cultivating the soil, or would it be done hydroponically, or, or, or how? Well, probably a little bit of both. Uh, there's a lot of research and testing and questions to respond to uh, about taking plants into space. Little things like how do you like the radiation environment and how does your genetics um, continue after you know a few cycles of uh, regeneration. So there, there are some profoundly important questions to be looked into quite deeply long before we would have fields of tomatoes and potatoes and rice and wheat and all the the long list of candidate crops that we work on uh, for this particular issue. But uh, that's a fair ways off in the future. I'm going to say decades. Um, But certainly long before that, we'll be walking on Mars and checking the place out. and yeah, we'll we'll end up growing it in some kind of controlled environment. That's one of the things that we do at Guelph is come up with the engineering criteria for that greenhouse on the moon or Mars. And I don't know what you, how much you know about Mars, but it's not a particularly hospitable place. It's uh, very cold. Average temperature is around minus 60 or minus 70. Um, the day length, though, is quite uh, favorable. It's only about a half an hour longer than... Earth's day length, so that's kind of normal, but the seasons are twice as long. So it takes two years for the two Earth years for Mars to go around the sun. Um, and and the, the climate is kind of miserable. There's not much of an atmosphere, and what little there is of the atmosphere, less than 1% of Earth's atmosphere, is mostly carbon dioxide. Indeed, one of the uh, poles is made up of frozen carbon dioxide, so dry ice. Uh, so it's, it's a pretty miserable, miserable, harsh environment uh, for survival, and the engineering requirements to uh, support humans and plant life, and by the way, we're not leaving the planet without green plants. Um, that's an app. We're not, le- or at least, we're not going very far, and we're not going to stay very long uh, unless we can have plants providing long-term, indefinite, sustainable, bioregenerable life support. Right. I, I, I began uh, the segment uh, referring to this article in the Daily Mail about this study at a university in the Netherlands where they are simulating uh, Martian soil. How, how do, Are you doing anything like that? And, and, and how would one simulate the Martian soil? Well, it's, it's based on the... Measurements that were taken by rovers, we've had uh, a number of rovers go up and bounce around on the surface of Mars for, for quite a long time and, and make measurements, send data back about the constituent elements on the surface of Mars. So we have a pretty fair, you know, even though we've never actually returned a sample of, of Martian regolith, Martian soil as they say, um, to confirm exactly what the mineral content is, if any, et cetera, um, the, the analytical tools that we've sent up have been able to determine, for example, that there's water 
uh, on Mars. It's frozen, of course, um, and and the constituents of the surface, in some degree of reliability, not a hundred percent though. And so it it's still that's still a question that further research will be required. I mean, I you know I I would want to send a robot up there with a few seeds and. Um, put them in a sample of Martian regolith, add some water and stir. <laughs> Basically the way the way life sort of works right. here, but that's going to be a while from now. Well, the the essential nutrients for growing plants, I mean nitrogen, would would the red planet have nitrogen in the soil or would it be would it be fairly sterile? It is likely quite sterile, uh, as is the moon for example. So there's there's not a lot of what we call life. However, I'm convinced, uh, as as a scientist in this field, I'm convinced, and I dare I say you heard it here first, I'm convinced that we will find some form of either microbial life or the vestiges of microbial life or some kind of life form especially when we start digging deep down into the bowels. Of All right, we will start to dig deep down. We'll dig deep on the other side. We'll take a time out, come back with Dr. Michael Dixon, University of Guelph, How to Grow Food on Mars, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Dr. Michael Dixon, University of Guelph, advisor to the Canadian Space Agency, How to Grow Food on Mars. And a quick shout-out to all of you streaming us live on YouTube. Please take a moment and subscribe to the YouTube channel. It's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And then you can watch radio. How's that? All right. Uh, so some of the challenges uh, of growing food on on Mars, uh, Doctor Dixon, the um, you mentioned uh, lack of atmosphere. Also, uh, microgravity. Uh, how do how do plants grow up in a um, or how do plants fare in a in a, in a, uh, a microgravity situation? Well. Plants um, replace up with where the light is and down with where the water is. But uh, on on Mars and even on the Moon, uh, there is an up and a down. Mars is, has about one third of Earth's gravity, and the Moon is about one sixth. Um, so that that's not a problem. It, microgravity applies when you're in low Earth orbit on, say, the International Space Station, or on a transit mission to Mars, which takes about six or seven months to get there with current propulsion technology. Of course, you've got to wait for a couple of years um, for the Earth to come back around so that you can swing back to the Earth from Mars. So, uh, uh, But as I say, just to get to the microgravity issue, um, the, the low Earth orbit applications will never have large-scale biological life support or plant-based life support systems in in the microgravity application where such as low earth orbit it's only a few hundred kilometers away you can resupply it um, forever um, so the issue of resupply becomes a little more dodgy when you're on mars and the round trips two and a half to three years um, it, the mass and energy cost of resupplying the food and water requirements become prohibitive so eventually 
with larger scale and longer term exploration missions on the Red Planet, we'll have to start building up um, a biological life support system to replace the physical chemical systems that we currently use in space exploration um, because we can't afford the mass and energy cost of resupplying them. The um, Back to the soil, uh, you, you mentioned that it's pretty sterile, although you wanted to go on the record on this program that uh, you believe at some point they will discover microbial or the vestiges, I suppose, of microbial life uh, in the soil. But there's also, uh, the Martian soil is also laced with a lot of nasty chemicals. Um, tell me about those. Well, you've got me there because that's not exactly my geology and, and uh, isn't my field. I don't feel very comfortable in that okay. particular area. I can talk to you about, uh, about the life support challenges, but, uh, in terms of, of what's in the dirt, um, it's a long list of stuff that I really don't yeah, know. Something perchlorates or something like that. So they would have to be somehow, they would have to be obviously removed. Um, or, or just avoid them altogether. I mean, we're not we're not going to be doing much out on the surface of Mars other than poking around and, and doing geological assessments. Uh, we're, we're going to be in controlled environments, right? And uh, the, setting up the engineering requirements for the controlled environments that uh, uh, that house humans as well as plants. Um, you know, just that show the Martian was was reasonably. Um, scientifically um, valid, actually, in many respects, except, of course, for the wind. With a 0.6 kilopascal total pressure in the atmosphere, um, which is almost a vacuum, I mean, you'd need quite a few hundred kilometers an hour just to mess your hair. (laughs) So to be blowing spaceships over and stuff like that, I think Hollywood took a little little, Uh, little bit of license. Well, as they are wont to do. Fair enough. Um, what sort of crops do you think would would fare best? First of all, uh, matched to the uh, you know the soil and the conditions, but also what foods would be would be um, uh, offer, I guess, the best nutritional density. Well, it, it's it's actually pretty straightforward. There, there's actually a list of candidate crops for space exploration, and they are a very conventional list of uh, those crops that make up a nutritional, well-balanced, vegetarian, obviously, diet. And uh, there's, there's a committee that sort of ponders this and goes over this. It's, it's an international committee, and I sit on it. We haven't met for a while, but um, when I, when I very, the very first time I went, which was about oh, more than 20 years ago, uh, I proposed my very first two proposals were roses and barley. And I had ulterior motives for both of those candidate crops. Roses, because I'm, I was at the time being very heavily supported by the Ontario rose growers <laughs> from Leamington and elsewhere. Uh, sadly, there is no rose growers or there isn't much of a rose growing industry in Ontario anymore. Nevertheless, Roses and barley. So roses were re- rejected almost immediately because you can't afford the mass and energy cost of growing a plant that you can't eat. Right. And so roses were struck off. And barley, <clears throat> it just so happened that 
um, that same year, I was appointed as one of the conveners of the Malt Whiskey Tasting Society of Canada. <laughs> and so I full you know, disclosure, just to full put disclosure, a little levity into the proceedings. <laughs> I I supported my argument for barley in that uh, in all of human history, wherever we go, we end up making alcohol, and I figured it may good as point. well be the good stuff. Good point. Good point. Um, all right, but aside from aside from roses and and barley, uh, I'm I'm guessing there would be the root vegetables. There would be things like uh, what? sweet potatoes, uh, um, wheat, rice, soybeans, corn, peas, beans. Um, you know, just think of a of a nutritious, well balanced vegetarian diet, and then back out the uh, plants that you'd have to grow to. Uh, to, to produce that, and the quantities, and the air. Each of us, you and I, would each need between 60 and 80 square meters of plant production uh, with a wide variety of these, you know, 30 or 40 different crops. Um, between 60 and 80 square meters per person uh, to, to provide all of the functions of your life support. And that is driven entirely by food. Food limits the equation about how far from Earth we can go and how long we can stay. And 60 to 80 square meters of plant production gives you all the food you need. It gives you twice the oxygen you need. It it scrubs twice the CO2 that you produce, and it recycles twice the amount of fresh water that you need. Hmm. Uh, Are you working at all with the Mars Desert Research Station? No. I've I've worked with the... uh, the Mars Society briefly when I up on Devon Island in the high high Arctic in the Canadian Arctic, uh, a couple of my students built a greenhouse up there with, and one of my students, uh, Matt Bamsey, spent a summer, a uh, season with the Mars Society up there, as a, as a sort of a you know genuine imitation astronaut, if you will, um, playing by the rules of engagement that you would have to use. If you were on Mars, so suiting up to go out, et cetera, et cetera, and actually Matt is is uh, a candidate for the next Canadian astronaut. Hmm, fascinating. That's wonderful. Um, so much to discuss here, but I, 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 something that's always fascinated me, and that is the possibility of terraforming uh, Mars. So instead of obviously growing plants in a temperature air controlled greenhouse, they would be out in the Martian elements. Uh, eventually, I mean, how feasible is it, would it be? How long would it take? And I don't know if this is within your purview to, to talk about this, but how difficult it would be, and how long would it take to terraform Mars? It would be massively difficult. Mars used to be quite a bit like Earth. It used to have a m- much more uh, significant atmosphere, uh, you know, much more complicated atmosphere with with a lot more different gases. It its temperature was higher. Uh, it had a molten core. It had a magnetic field. It has none of the above anymore. It's it's uh, it's a lump. <laughs> it uh, doesn't have my, its atmosphere is gone. Its magnetic field. There's a couple of spots of magnetic field here and there around the planet, but it it's largely uh, you know a, a big red, partly completely frozen uh, block 
floating around in space. So terraforming something of that nature, I, I have a feeling the technical challenge is certainly not within the... Uh, the limits of our imagination today based on the technology we can bring to bear. What would, what would you, you need to do uh, if you were to attempt to terraform, um, and that's basically to, to regenerate the, the atmosphere and so forth in Mars, uh, or on Mars, what would you need to do uh, in order to bring that about? You'd have to do some pretty serious large-scale chemistry on the surface to to get an atmosphere pump oxygen into the into the soil and microbes and things like that well microbes would have a hard time at least microbes that we know there there was a mars uh, simulation chamber down at kennedy space center in fact still there i think they still use it on occasion and it it basically simulated um the the conditions on the surface of mars including the ultraviolet radiation from the sun uh, we didn't it doesn't include the, the the cosmic radiation that may or may not occur uh, periodically, but just it's bad enough just being minus sixty or minus seventy um, and point six kilopascals of total pressure, uh, mostly CO two, ninety five percent of that CO two. So we can replicate those that, those environment conditions in this chamber down at Kennedy Space Center. And uh, a colleague of mine there, Andy Sherger, who's at the University of Florida, uh, was testing, you know, will microbes survive under those conditions? Well, so far the answer is no. Um, on the surface, the ultraviolet radiation alone, which in the absence of much of an atmosphere to attenuate it, here, here on Earth, UV comes through at about 300 or so nanometers. That's the wavelength of ultraviolet A that comes through. Uh, on on Mars, it's 200 nanometers, so extremely toxic, to say uh, the least. Right? Yeah, instant suntan. <laughs> you know, maybe an obvious question, but why go to Mars then? It's so inhospitable. Why go? Well, why climb Mount Everest? Uh, why dive deep into the, the ocean? We're humans, and we do this kind of stuff, I guess. It's just in our nature to explore. Um, it, it's there. And we're almost certainly going to find out something more detailed about the origins of life on Earth. Um, Mars and Earth and, indeed, most of the planets in our solar system have been trading bits and pieces of each other for millennia. And it's almost a certainty that some critter came along on a Martian meteorite or vice versa, for that matter. And uh, that's why I'm so convinced that we will almost certainly find at least the vestiges of some sort of life form uh, when we dig a deep hole on Mars. Why not go back to the moon and, and try and figure out how to grow crops there first? Wouldn't that be a, a logical intermediary step? It's a it's a very it's a very uh, long-winded debate among scientists and and governments because it, it, you need the political will obviously before the economics start to make sense and uh, it, it's been a a growing debate and it goes back and forth. Um, most of us, I, I will say, and I'll include myself in this 
feel just as you just suggested that yeah you go back to the moon you figure out you break stuff there because it's only three days away after all um and and learn learn what's easy and what's hard and fix it and then go to mars and uh the the chances of success are probably significantly better at least in my mind they are do you have i mean have you been uh told like how quickly to ramp this this up this project in order to uh to be able to, to you know to grow crops on mars in other words is there a timeline for that you're aware of for putting boots on the ground in mars not at the moment there was a, briefly a timeline when uh the last bush was in office um and there there was a moon mars and beyond kind of storyline that was but the the political will wax and wanes and and uh, at the moment today for in in Canada for example I have no mission to go into space and grow a plant and without a mission there's no money so all of the funding for the research activities that we undertake at at Guelph uh although they're everything we do is pulled by the technical requirement to go to the moon or Mars and grow a plant for human life support. Uh, but it is driven entirely by the investments of mostly industry partners who want to get in on the ground floor, floor of the latest technologies in controlled environment production systems and, uh, and, and apply them to terrestrial applications in the agri-food sector, greenhouses, etc. All right, Dr. Dixon, we'll take a time out, come back, and continue to discuss growing food on Mars. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Dr. Michael Dixon from the University of Guelph, advisor to the Canadian Space Agency, and we're talking about how to grow food on Mars. Uh, now, in the uh, the Martian, uh, Matt Damon's character. I'm trying to think. How does he get the water? He, he does. It's something from the uh, from the rocket fuel. Uh, what does he do? Distill the rocket fuel or something? How? I mean, how how would you do that? How would you get water uh, to, to water the plants on Mars? Well, there there's quite a bit of water on Mars. Um, you, that was confirmed uh, by the Phoenix lander some years ago, I think. Back in 2010 or so, um, and they, they, so you would have to melt it, and it would it would cost you some energy to uh, to use the water that's there. All right, yeah. Somehow he was creating it out of the um, uh, out of the rocket fuel, but I don't think they went into great detail. I think that might, yeah, I might, don't, I don't might remember be problematic. Myself, I read the bloody book too, and I I can't <laughs> remember exactly those details, but. Uh, and in terms of fertilizing it, uh, uh, good old Matt was—he uh, was putting his well, forgive my uh, my crudeness—he was just putting his poop right on the plants. Uh, Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, you can't do that. Well, sure you can. Really? Wouldn't that be toxic? We do here with all the the uh, organic refuse from uh, all of you know chickens and pigs and cows. Uh, but, but it has to break down. Or it goes on the field, and we use it to grow grow plants. But doesn't it have to break down over a period of time? You don't just put it directly on there. Well, yeah, it does. Uh, the microbial critters, microbes win, by the way. So the microbial systems would uh, break down and nitrify the the nitrate nitrates, the nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus, and the other 
14 different micro elements that you need um, for growing plants would be provided in that way because we you know we eat them I mean if you eat the plant then uh, those bits and pieces are recycled right now I read somewhere where uh, the average human diet um, requires about a thousand different crops by the time you figure out everything that we eat I mean, that's that's uh, <laughs> pretty ambitious. Yeah, that, I, I wouldn't say it requires that. I'm, I would say that that's what's available to us currently around the world in, okay. in uh, all the variety of different foodstuffs that we create from plants. But what you require uh, is, can be made up of anywhere from 50 to 60 plants. Oh, is that all? Yeah. Okay. You know... I think eggs are, not that I'm, you know, working for the Ontario Eggs Marketing Board or anything, but I think eggs are the perfect food. Uh, and I love eggs. Uh, I mean, is this crazy? Why not take, you know, some chickens up there? <laughs> well, yeah, that's not a bad idea. I'm, I'm kind of partial to eggs myself, but, uh, I suppose you could take some fertilized eggs up with you and, and start that way, but uh, once again, nothing's going to happen in a hurry here, as you've seen from the way the space program goes. We don't have a Jack Kennedy uh, telling us we're going to go to the moon in a decade anymore. Those days are gone. So we have to justify the the political will and the economics. And you know, one of the biggest questions I get traveling around is. Uh, so this is going to cost, you know, billions of dollars. Uh, and, and people somehow have the strange notion that you're going to take a big gunny sack full of cash and bury it on the surface of the moon or Mars. And that's, the, that's how the investment is done. Well, no, the investment is done, in our case, in the Canadian economy. You, you know, Canada is almost too perfect as a country to take on the technical challenge of even bits and pieces of the space exploration initiative. And life support is, in my mind, the next Canada arm. Uh, we oh. come by our leadership in this field now, quite honestly, because, let's face it, the next worst place after a snowbank in Canada to try and grow a plant has got to be the surface of the moon. And uh, the technology challenge is almost identical. Right, right. Absolutely. Um what about the um, the lighting? Uh, how would you grow? Uh, under what lighting conditions do you imagine? You, you'd I'll... like to use the free light that the sun offers, but that comes at a cost, and that cost is radiation, uh, ultraviolet radiation at the very least, and probably other aspects. Cosmic galactic cosmic radiation mm -hmm. is a real bugger. It's uh, it, it, it's very nasty and uh, very difficult to protect yourself from unless you're down in a hole. So under those circumstances, if, if we can't use the free light from the sun, then the, the next choice, of course, is, is an artificial source. And the top of the list in technology here today is, is light-emitting diodes, LEDs. Right, right. They're, they're going to replace just about every light in your life. <laughs> That's what they keep telling us when they send us the hydro bill. Switch over to LED. Yeah, so buy stock, I guess. <laughs> um, 
Another silly question, perhaps. I ask a lot of them. I mean, it, I do a little gardening. We've got a, a garden in the back, and I grow tomatoes and so forth. And it's hard work, uh, and it's tricky. How do you... I mean, I don't even like to wear gardening gloves because I can't grip, you know, if I'm tie, trying to tie the tomato plants and so forth. I'm trying to try to wrap my head around gardening, you know, you know, in a full pressurized suit, for crying out loud. That's going to be tricky. Uh, no, see, you wouldn't do it that way, especially on on Mars or, or in any harsh environment. We would create the uh, appropriate environment. It would be a uh, shirt sleeve environment. For humans and and, uh, and and appropriate for plants, plants can uh, can adapt to almost an order of magnitude variation in all the environment variables that that are important to them, except temperature. And it's almost half an order of magnitude there. We're the wimpy ones. Uh, <laughs> Indeed, we are. Indeed, we are. All right, another quick uh, timeout. Come back and finish up with Dr. Michael Dixon growing food on Mars right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down, and it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Dr. Michael Dixon stays with us, University of Guelph and uh, advisor to the Canadian Space Agency. You know, what's um, you've advised uh, a, a different space agencies, and what's remarkable to me, and... Uh, I mean, this is maybe a little bit going back into history, but I, I don't know to what extent uh, this cooperation was there during the Cold War. I've heard that it was. And and some say we may be heading into another Cold War with relations with uh, Mr. Putin. But but above all of that geopolitical fray, this cooperation in terms of space agencies seems to continue. It, that's remarkable. Yes, uh, there, there's a, a committee called the Committee for Space Research. COSPAR is the acronym. And every two years, it's an international group, and every two years, somewhere on the planet, we meet. And uh, except this past year, 2016, we were supposed to meet in Istanbul. And um, for the obvious reasons of the local uh, tensions and right. political unrest, uh we had to cancel. I think that's the first time in my memory that, that uh, especially for reasons like that, that this meeting was canceled. But groups around the world, uh, you know, I've met in Russia. Um, we've been everywhere. So we, there, there doesn't appear to be any secrets among us scientists in this particular field of, of space exploration. Um, it's it's uh, it's all for one, if you will, and um, the, the publications. Everyone has access to all the information, so there's no secrets. The um, the first horticulturalist on Mars, we're hoping, will be Canadian. Um, tell the three year olds that I talked to, or the, the grade three students in the Tomato Sphere project. That's exactly what I tell them. The first. Canadian horticultural mission specialist on the trip to Mars is in grade three today. Okay, so that now we have a kind of a timeline. So in grade three, that would make them eight, nine years old. Yep. So we could be on track for 2030. Oh, absolutely. There's no question that we'll get there in the next couple of decades at the most. Um, The issue is, though, you know, continuing and building up 
the, uh, the, the, the sort of exploration activities, the, the scale and depth of the exploration activities and the number of people and the, and the number of trips. And we're kind of limited because it's every 26 months is when we line up with Mars. So you got to plan ahead and, uh, Mind you, we'll come up with propulsion technologies that will shorten the trip con- considerably. And uh, those, those, you know, just imagine what's happened in the last 50 years or the last 30 years and extrapolate the technology developments into the next 30 years. Um, right. I'm guessing in 2030 we won't be using rocket fuel. That's just my... Estimation. I could be way off base there, but I was reading recently they're talking about fusion reactors uh, by 2027. So who knows? Exactly. Um, I'm I'm confident that we'll come up with some remarkable technologies that we haven't even thought of yet. I mean, how long ago was it that you couldn't even conceive of a cell phone? Right. I mean, my gosh, we've been using rocket fuel for 70 years. I mean, it's a little bit the way, like the way we, we transmit electricity. It hasn't really changed in 100 years. I mean, come on, let's get serious. Um, but you, may, you maintain that the stumbling block uh, remains radiation because we don't know uh, how radiation is going to affect uh, the genetics of the plants and so forth. And, and the best way to do that is, uh, is to test that out on the moon, I'm guessing. Uh, or, or just, um, you know, on, on the route. I mean, you don't have to get to the moon. Just get away from the, the safety of Earth's atmosphere. Right, right. And, uh, and you're into some pretty nasty radiation. The Van Allen belts. Exactly. So there's, there's a lot, there's a lot to learn. I mean, we're just at this, the leading edges here of the technology developments. You know, we have to be able to recycle everything. You can't throw stuff away when you go into space, so there, there will be no garbage. You have to recycle it all, and that's, you know, a lot of what we do at, at Guelph is coming up with recyclable technologies, recyclable products, controlled environment uh, strategies that recycle atmosphere and water, and guess what? We're being legislated into recycling water in most agri-food jurisdictions around the planet here on Earth, mm-hmm. so... That that's the current market and application for a lot of this space exploration technology we're developing. Uh, it, it has a home here, both a commercial and a practical home here on Earth. Well, that's that was my next question, and that is, how does space agriculture research help us here on Earth? So you mentioned water recycling. What else? How else does it help us? Well, the the kinds of commodities, the uh, and and. Recyclable products, uh, you know, we, we can't throw away the growth medium, for example, um, and the, the amount of growth medium that we throw, the amount of rock wool we throw away here in greenhouse, the greenhouse sector is, is amazing. So I can't do that on the moon and Mars. I have to be able to recycle everything. So we're coming up with products that you can do that with. Uh, the, the other part is the, the kinds of commodities and medicines <clears throat> plants will be the source of a lot of our medicines just as they are here on earth um, but the the as I call it the phytopharmaceutical sector is is the, uh, the the industry sector here on earth that has a profit margin that can consume the technical risks that guys like me represent in terms of 
the level of technology that we would deploy to grow a um, you know, we're growing cancer drugs in tobacco plants, for example, just for the sheer irony of it, I guess. Right, right. Well, I was going to ask you, uh, you know, maybe that's uh, maybe that, that's where they'll legalize marijuana first on the Red Planet. And well, they exactly. Can... <laughs> I mean, we're, we're very heavily inundated by inquiries from the marijuana community in the last couple of years because of the changing laws here in Canada. But cannabis needs to have this kind of research applied to it so that it can raise its status from that of a joke to a bona fide conventional pharmaceutical commodity. How do you think marijuana would do on the red planet? How would it grow? That's I'd like to find out. <laughs> oh, I bet you would, Dr. Dixon. No, <laughs> oh, the um the uh, the uh the shelter that you're going to grow these plants in. Uh, I mean, would it, obviously you have to deal with the radiation. We've talked about that. But you've also talked about how resilient plants are. So, I mean, would, you, would it have to be like a rigid type of greenhouse or would it be under a tent? What would, what would the habitat for these plants look like? It, well, one of the things that we did, in fact, I had a grad student a few years back who came up with essentially the engineering criteria for a greenhouse on the moon or Mars. So you've got a vacuum there, and if you need to have full Earth atmosphere, that was one of the first questions we asked in the, in the facility that we developed at Guelph uh, that we, we started building in 2000. <coughs> Sorry. And um, we asked, how low can you take the pressure and still have plants performing all the functions of human life support? And if the answer to that question 15 years ago had been, well, you need full Earth atmosphere, then we're almost done now. Human exploration, long-term exploration with biological systems is over because full Earth atmosphere, I've got chambers at Guelph that can hold that gradient, that you know vacuum inside and full Earth atmosphere outside, so the reverse would be required. And those chambers have one and a half square meters of growing area, and they weigh eight tons. Oh, my. <laughs> and remember, what I told you, you, you and I each need between 60 and 80 square meters. So the math is silly. The mass and energy cost, and that's the currency of space travel, uh, is prohibitive to require full Earth atmosphere. So we learned that plants can handle it all the way down to a tenth of Earth's atmosphere as long as they have enough oxygen. That's the limiting variable. What about the carbon dioxide? Well, carbon dioxide is just a squirt of, uh, a, of a component of the atmosphere for photosynthesis. It's parts per million as opposed to percents of the atmosphere. So our atmosphere here is roughly 21% oxygen and the rest is mostly nitrogen and a bunch of other stuff. But the oxygen, as long as you've got about uh, seven kilopascals instead of 21 kilopascals of the hundred here on Earth. Uh, as long as you've got seven, plants can manage. Uh, they don't flourish, but they can perform their functions as a life support system. And uh, humans can't, of course. So uh, I suspect that the the uh, the the mission to Moon and Mars will have habitats that are around half of Earth's atmosphere uh, with a slightly enriched oxygen. They'll have essentially the same oxygen as here, so 21 
kilopascals of oxygen, and half of Earth's atmosphere would be about 50 kilopascals. So it would be um, an, an enriched oxygen relative to Earth, but uh, uh, that is a shirt-sleeve environment for us, That's uh, and plants can do very, very well in that indeed. So, um, tomorrow morning, you're going to get up, you're going to head over to the University of Guelph, and uh, what are you going to be working on? Uh, well, we've got a long list of experiments and projects. We are, uh, as I said, growing cancer drugs in tobacco plants. Uh, we, ha- I have three grad students working with the cannabis industry sector trying to figure out um, how to turn that into a pharmaceutical commodity. And we're also working with LED lighting. We have lamps, or I guess we had lamps, seven of them that when you turn them on full blast give you five times the intensity of the sun um, but we blew them all up not too long ago oh, and they're just being replaced now so there's a bit of a technical chore there to put together our latest toys and uh, and we have some new we, we've developed and, and, and uh, licensed technology that we've labeled the Guelph Blue Box Chamber and blue box refers to the recycling programs, and these chambers, these growth chambers, uh, are designed to recycle everything, all the water and oxygen and atmosphere, uh, indefinitely. And then we have highly precise instrumentation to measure what's happening, um, how the plants respond to different environment challenges, different lighting levels. Uh, turns out you can change the size, shape, taste, color, chemical composition of a plant just by messing with the color of the light. Fascinating. Well, uh, this has been enlightening, uh, Dr. Dixon, and um, by 2030, when uh, we have set foot on the moon, or rather on Mars, uh, they may not be astronauts so much as farmers. Exactly. Thanks in large measure to your work. Horticultural mission specialists, I guess we'll call them. All right. We appreciate your time tonight. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Richard. Dr. Michael Dixon, University of Guelph. My website, strangeplanet.ca. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. Mm -hmm.